Another thing that happened actually in the peer review that I now do all the time, which is seems small, but is very powerful, is we had a reader in the peer review who we didn't know beforehand, who every single time, you know, we have all these projects about gender and most of them just treat gender as a binary. And we were trying to talk about the projects and we were saying like, you know, they say that men do this and women do this or whatever. And this reader went through literally every single time we said that, they said, well, what about non-binary people? We actually reached out to them. We're like, well, we're not really sure what to do because these projects did not talk about non-binary people. And they were like, well, just say that. Just insert a line that says, when you're summarizing the results of the study, just say, the study concluded, you know, men do it this way, women do it this way. The study did not consider non-binary genders. And so we just did that, just very matter-of-factly. Welcome back to the DFN Podcast. I'm your host, Allie. And today's episode is a very special Q&A with co-author of Data Feminism, Lauren F. Klein. For those of you who don't know, Data Feminism is a book written by Catherine Dignazio and Lauren F. Klein that presents a new way of thinking about data science and ethics, one that is informed by intersectional feminist thought. A key theme of the book is power, because in today's increasingly technological world, data is a form of power. It has been used to expose injustice, improve health outcomes, and topple governments. But it has also been used to discriminate, police, and survey. This potential for good on the one hand, and harm on the other, makes it essential to ask, data science by whom? Data science for whom? Data science with whose interests in mind? This book was a huge inspiration behind the founding of DFN. We absolutely love it. And over the summer of 2021, we held a three-part book club series where we explored the topics covered in the book with our community. Lauren came to the third part of that series for a Q&A, which was facilitated by our friend Kishana, founder and executive director of Toronto Women X in Data Science. In this Q&A, Lauren talks a bit about her background, about the process of writing data feminism, which includes a really unique peer review process as well as additional advice for people who are new to the realm of data on how to implement the principles covered in the book. Without further ado, we'll kick off this episode with Lauren telling us a bit about her background. I have sort of two main areas of research. The first has to do with the fields called digital humanities, and this is thinking about how computational methods, including but not limited to data science and quantitative analyses, can be applied to traditional humanistic research questions. So I'm interested in particular in pre-20th century social movements, and in particular the relationships, not always good, between Black women and white women organizers in the 19th century, particularly around abolition of slavery and the campaign for women's rights. And then the other thing that I do is sort of theorize digital methods per data feminism through all of these humanistic theories. And so it's sort of a theory practice kind of um, approach that I take in most of my work. Great. So I know you left some things out, so I'm definitely going to read your bio. (laughs) Because there's a lot of things in here that if I was you, I'd be clapping for myself. So (laughs) Lauren Klein is Winship Distinguished Researcher Professor and Associate Professor in the Departments of English and Quantitative Theory and Methods at Emory University, where she also directs the Digital Humanities Lab. 
Before moving to Emory, she taught in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication at Georgia Tech. Klein works at the intersection of digital humanities, data science, and early American literature with a focus on issues of gender and race. She has designed platforms for exploring the contents of historical newspapers, modeled the invisible labor of women abolitionists, and recreated forgotten visualization schemes with fabric and addressable LEDs. In 2017, she was named one of the rising stars in digital humanities by insider higher ed. She's the author of an archive of taste, race, and eating in the early United States, which I've added to my book list to read. And Catherine Dignazio, Data Feminism from MIT Press 2020, which we're reading. With Matthew K. Gold, she edits debates in the digital humanities, a hybrid print digital publication stream that explores debates in the field as they emerge. Her current project, Data by Design, an interactive history of data visualization, was recently funded by the NEH Digital Humanities Advancement Grant. So I had to say it all. I wanted to know with the work that you're doing now, how has writing data feminism informed that work? So that's for everyone who missed all the great things. Her current project is called Data by Design, an interactive history of data visualization. Thanks for that question. I, I actually, it's one that I've been thinking about a ton. Catherine and I actually, this is something we talk about a lot because in many ways, at a certain point, data feminism emerged from the work that we have been doing so far. And if Catherine were here, she would tell sort of a parallel but similar story about how both of us took our experience and knowledge of two seemingly pretty distant fields and brought them together. And so that's sort of what led us to the project, thinking about how theories and concepts from you know, sort of ways of thinking really could be operationalized and applied to fairly technical work. And both of us sort of came to that as a result of both of us worked in tech, big tech, um, before we went to academia. So that was something that we shared. But after articulating these principles, there were some things that we recognized we had already been doing in our work and we were just naming them. And then there were a lot of things we realized that we could do a lot better. And so I think both of us more intentionally have really been trying to walk the walk. You know, if the premise of data feminism was a better data science is possible. It's possible to use data to work for justice if it's used intentionally and with care. We wanted to not just articulate the hows, but also show sort of to show how that could take place. Um, and so for Catherine's part, she's been working in collaboration with a lot of Central and South American feminist activists to bring more, more attention to the issue of feminicide, which we actually talk about a little bit. And I think it's the first chapter, the second chapter. Um, and she is now um, sort of hooked into this really broad network of feminist activists who and actually help working with them to build software platforms that can help them manage their data, that can help them connect with each other to sort of amplify their individual efforts when they're connected with each other. I'm a little bit more invested on the data analysis side. You know, for me, the questions that I've talked about for like my whole academic career, at least, is, you know, what are the uses of quantitative methods, especially when applied to the data that we have with the knowledge that that data is not complete? And what are their limits? And I always sort of toggle back and forth between feeling like there's more uses than limits or feeling like there are more limits than uses. But I have been trying to think about the ways that we can use data analysis techniques. In particular, I deal a lot with textual data. So when I'm talking about data analysis, I really mean like NLP and machine learning and with some network stuff thrown in. But I'm really trying to think about if there are feminist concepts like 
invisible labor, like ideas of collectivity versus like individual nodes or actors that we can model more robustly. And then we can try to elevate or make visible or make more present because we have brought together these ways of thinking about data and thinking about feminism. So yeah, so maybe I'll stop there. The Data by Design project actually is kind of, it's like the side project that I keep on. I've been working on also for like 10 years, but I keep on doing these other things. But that's sort of like a counter history of data visualization where I'm trying to, much like data feminism, sort of show how these questions of the humanity that you know comes with data, the lived experience that cannot be captured, these questions of racism, of sexism, like how these are expressed in the way, the sort of conventional and traditional ways in which data and data sets are constructed. Like that's always been there from the start. It's not just like a revisionist history, but actually if you go back to these, the foundations of when the concept of data took shape, which is like late enlightenment or early, uh, late 18th century, early 19th century, all of these things were already happening. So that project you should watch for, it's going to be a website. It's going to be open access, but yeah, but that's so anyway, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm all over the place. I got some stuff going on. <laughs> I love it. I love the different layers. Also, audience, if you have any questions, put them in the chat, raise your hand. I'll try to look for it. I could quite easily hog Lauren all to myself, but if you have questions, please raise your hand. I see a hand raise from Ali. Do you mind unmuting yourself and asking a question? Hi, Lauren. So you said that I see your, ba I see your basement in the background and you said that that's where data feminism was written or much of it was written, which is funny to me because since I've read so much of data feminism and it seems like this holy book to me, I picture you and Catherine sitting in this white pristine lab while, while writing it. So it makes me think, what did the writing process look like for the two of you? I, I was tempted just to like quickly change my virtual background so you could see some sort of temple of, of technology. So I guess the, the interesting thing to know about me and Catherine is that we didn't know each other bef really before we started working on this project together. We were introduced because I had been working actually on this history of data visualization project that I mentioned in like 2013. And I had given this talk in Boston called Feminist Data Visualization, where my theory was like, if again, like I just said to Kishana, like if we go back to the earliest our earliest known examples of what we take to be modern data visualization, there are actually a lot of examples that sort of embody these feminist principles that we haven't paid attention to because they're not coming from like political science or economics or, you know, the places where we conventionally look for examples of what constitutes, you know, like rigorous scientific research. It's mostly educators. They are mostly women. They're mostly teaching young people. So it wasn't even considered sort of rigorous work. Anyway, so I was doing this sort of talk. Meanwhile, Catherine did not go to the talk, but a friend of hers was like, hey, I think you'd be really interested in this talk that I went to because Catherine had recently written this blog post that was thinking about about feminist approaches to visualization in a contemporary context. We had this mutual friend. It turns out like it's a small nerdy world. We got introduced. We decided to write a short paper together, um, which we did like virtually. This was pre-pandemic, but you know, I think both of us have pretty collaborative scholarly practices, um, more so I would say than most academics do. So we were pretty comfortable with collaborating over Google Docs and Dropbox. And we were using, it was like pre-Zoom, so we were using Skype. So we did that. And then Catherine actually, through her sort of Boston MIT network, was introduced to someone who had the series at MIT Press. who was like, you should really turn this paper into a book. And so like when someone says that to you, you're like, 
you know, okay, yes, I think so. <laughs> um, so we just, we sort of replicated and expanded the practice. So we, there are chapters. So we each sort of took the lead on different chapters because there are chapters that reflect a little bit more of our individual expertise. Um, and so we each would sort of draft one chapter, but we would switch and we would constantly write and rewrite and rewrite over each other's work to the point that I could not tell you at this point, like wh which word was written by which person. And I think we also got to be really good at recognizing um, what the unique skills of each other was as a writer. Like Catherine's really good at a good like closing zinger. Like I get to the end and I'm exhausted and I'm like, I've said everything I need to say. I just, I, I, I'm done. And Catherine can usually come in there with like one really snappy lessons. And so I was, I, I would usually like by the end of it, I was be like, Catherine, can you fill this in? I don't know what my skills are, but um, so yeah, so we just did a ton of revision. We did it all via Google docs. It went through several iterations before we submitted it for this open peer review process, which some of you may have seen. So MIT press at the time was testing out this new, their online publishing platform that involves commenting and drafts and, you know, some features and they wanted to test it out and they approached us and said, you know, would you want to do this? And it was such a natural fit for what we believed about the process of writing the book and what we knew to be sort of both what we knew, but also what we didn't know and how the fact that we didn't know certain things or inhabit certain perspectives. I mean, Catherine and I, like in the grand scheme of things are pretty similar to each other in terms of our positionality. You know, like we're both white academic lady, mama ladies, you know, I mean, there's, you could quibble about the differences, but that's pretty much what it is. And we were trying to write this book that spoke to a wide range of human experiences. And those were not ones that we personally necessarily had experience with. And so we did this open peer review and we solicited feedback from folks in our respective communities. And we also just put it out there. And the response was very amazing. You know, both, I think the people, you know, our own people, you know, came, they showed up for us, which felt really good, but also in ways that we didn't anticipate, it really seemed to resonate with people. And I think the peer review, and I think in many ways, because we, it was, was a fairly vulnerable position, especially sort of an academic position to take where you're really acculturated, like you can tell I'm doing it now. Um, you're acculturated to just like speak authoritatively and always pretend like you absolutely 100% know what you're talking about. You know, most academics don't put drafts on the internet for people to critique. But I think that that sort of, I was going to say paradoxically, but not even paradox. It was just like, there was something about that that I think made in turn made it, made people feel more able to comment. And so anyway, so then we revised the book a whole other time in response to the, the reader comments. And that I think actually is aware. And then also got peer reviewed, you know, anonymous academic peer reviewed. And so we got like big pages long peer reviews that we also had to respond to. But that was really where I think the book, I mean, it clearly benefited so much from all of the different perspectives that came out through the peer review. It would not have been nearly, I think, as compelling a project if it were not for that process to the point now where Catherine and I actually each independently as we pursue our own projects separate from each other we have each sought additional open peer reviews from our respective presses for our next projects because we feel like it would benefit you know work benefits from many eyes many brains many hands um, it's so clear to me now I can definitely see how that can be really really vulnerable but I'm really glad that you both took that take because it just felt like um it just felt like it was really intentional 
Like I could, I could tell how intentional it was when I was reading it. And it also didn't feel like, it didn't feel like it was like a different group of people speaking about a different group of people. Like it felt like it was, it felt like, but that there was kind of like a community consultation of like how this book was going to be written. So I'm glad that you were like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> I, I'm starting to get a lot of questions in the chat, so I'll try to go through them. So I have a question from Stacy. She says, sometimes it feels like nothing but problems in sight, a very large mountain to overcome. Do you personally have optimism it can get better or do you see a lack of attention slash leadership? Oh my goodness. I mean, I feel like I feel like saying yes to all of those questions. I mean, I agree with all of those, right? I mean, I do feel like we I mean, I don't know what the the scope is, but I'll say um, you know, both globally in terms of climate change and global conflict and uh, and global inequality nationally in terms of climate change inequality <laughs> in terms of conflicts. And I think also maybe I'll just sort of like limit it to the scope, like in the field of data science or sort of STEM, STEM fields. I mean, I do feel like there are, these problems are mountains. I also feel that there is, well, I would say with the exception of in STEM, where I feel like there are some bright spots, but there is sort of a lack of attention and leadership, at least the kind of leadership we would like to see. You know, and I simultaneously, like, I don't think I'm very Pollyannish. I do think that I'm pragmatic. Um, and I think Catherine and I both, you know, like there are, there are versions of the book that we could have written that would have been like, we refuse to work with data because it is fundamentally corrupt medium and a imperfect representation of what we know to be true about how people live their lives, right? Like there's a, and I actually like, that book exists and I honestly would believe like I would like agree I would be underlining most of that book but I think like Catherine and I are also at our core like deeply nerdy and like the technical aspects of this and we sort of we feel like there has to be a way I increasingly feel like this is not like at a large scale and I think that it does happen through small intentional acts in the environments that you can touch and impact and that's sort of where and I think the other thing is that there are individuals in most of these small individual groups that also think the way that you know that we do I mean I was just like zooming with someone at UVA who's like how do we do better data science at our institution I was like I know right isn't it hard we're asking those same questions oh are you gonna come oh you're gonna be on the zoom <laughs> bathing suit cape and tap shoes <laughs> tap shoes <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty funny. That was a good outfit. If you had to make an appearance, I would actually um, now go back upstairs. Okay, please. Nope. Okay, then you have to be quiet or do a picture over there. Okay. Oh, people, same people. Um, I do feel like and I guess, you know, we talk about this a little bit in the book, but you know, a lot can be gained by finding your people both sort of where you are but also finding like-minded people across networks and building these network networks from the bottom up rather than the top down. And I think, you know, in many cases, and this is something that Catherine and I talk about a little bit in the book, oh, vampire teeth, but are now, <laughs> so you're really pulling out all the stops here. Um, but I think, you know, we had sort of theorized, but are increasingly, even since the book was published, I think we're seeing a more of this type of work happening, like at the at the industry level, at major conferences, the, the projects that are sort of counter data science projects, like the audits of existing systems, the 
large-scale analyses of the values embedded in, you know, like for, for example, I'm thinking of uh, Ababa Berhain's recent paper, The Values of Machine Learning or something, um, where she and a team did this sort of like values audit. I mean, and we're seeing this type of work rise to the national prominence, be featured at major conferences. And it is sort of always, or in many cases, and sort of playing a, like an, a role of accountability, right? But again, you know, I think that has tremendous value and together, and like, this is just in general, how social, social change happens, right? It's like, there always needs to be these accountability mechanisms that keep the people in positions of power that sort of like, bring them a little bit over to the side such that eventually large scale change is made. Definitely. Going back to the peer review, I have a question from Mark. Hi, Lauren. How long did the peer review process take for you? Also, thank you for this. It's great to hear a little fan mail in there. <laughs> <laughs> the peer review process, I think we opened it for maybe two or three months. I think we had intended to keep it open for two months and we extended it for three. So that was the commenting period. And then the, the sort of formal peer review took place in parallel. But then the revision process took almost a year, I think. Let's see, you know, so the peer review, I think it closed around like December, January. Someone can probably look on the site, it's still active. And then, no, I don't know, maybe, yeah, then I don't, yeah, I, the reason why I'm hesitating is like when you write a book, it's never, there are so many pro times when it comes back to you. So like you submit the draft for peer review, then you revise it, then you submit it for full review, then you revise it, then it gets copy edited, and then it revise it, then it gets typeset, then you revise it. I do remember that we submitted the final, final version of the book in April, 2019, and it came out in March, 2020. So there was an 11 month gap when we like did not touch it at all. But anyway, yeah, that's sorry for the lack of concrete. <laughs> okay. Chris, please be careful with those weights. Those are heavy, okay? They're not ready to be. Okay. Um, Daisy, we have for someone working on data viz in a small, fast paced NGO, primarily using secondary data to build tools for vulnerable communities. I worry often that we may overlook biases, privilege, and the many elements mentioned in the book. However, much of these are invisible issues that can be amplified by my visual work. How do I make data responsibility as a priority to my org without being able to specify specific potential harmful outcomes? Um, that's a really good question. And so I guess like there's sort of, I have sort of two answers to this. And one of this actually comes from sort of the way in which DEI efforts are often structured at institutions. And the question of like how you make people care about a concept and value a particular concept, like for instance, diversity or responsibility is like you write it into the, the highest level of documents that you have that define the scope of who you're hiring, what kind of work you do, how you value ele and assess, elevate, promote that type of work. Like you need to get it into the assessment criteria or the mission statement. And so on one track, it's like, think of a broad way to articulate this type of work like data responsibility and make sure it's written down so that when you're at a meeting and someone's saying, I don't know if we should do that, or we need to like make a list in order of the things that we care about, you can say, well, actually, one of the things, top level things we care about is responsible data visualization, right? And this is part of that. So that's like the top level. And that I think is something, again, that takes multiple people over time and sort of finding a little team that's willing to be the group that advocates for that type of language from the top down from the bottom up. I mean, I do think that especially as designers, we can make very small but 
intentional choices in each of the visualizations that we design that try to model or like either push back against reinscribing certain biases or silences, and then also modeling good visualization work. You know, whether it is, and I know we have a long bit in the chapter five, which you oh, no, you've read very closely, but like about just titling visualizations. Um, another thing that happened actually in the peer review that I now do all the time, which is seems small, but is very powerful, is we had a reader in the peer review who we didn't know beforehand, who every single time, you know, we have all these projects about gender and most of them just treat gender as a binary. And we were trying to talk about the projects and we were saying like, you know, they say that men do this and women do this or whatever. And this reader went through literally every single time we said that, they said, well, what about non-binary people? And we actually, and it was like, that's literally what they did. Like, and I, we actually reached out to them. We're like, well, we're not really sure what to do because these projects did not talk about non-binary people. And they were like, well, just say that. Just insert a line that says, when you're summarizing the results of the study, just say, the study concluded, you know, men do it this way, women do it this way. The study did not consider non-binary genders. And so we just did that, um, like just very matter-of-factly. And I subsequently have started doing that in all of my papers because it's very easy to do. Similarly, like in the small text below the visualization. Um, and it's actually prompted some really good conversations among like pretty technical team members. Like I do a lot of collaboration with folks in computer science. Um, and even at one point when I put in that line, the, the, the collaborator said like, oh, you're right, that paper doesn't do that. But I did read this other paper that actually deals with gender beyond the binary. Let's use that instead. And so I think small things like that, that just are sort of a constant signal a reminder that there is a better way that is not happening like right in this visualization that you see um, can be like unobtrusive but really resonant um, you know there's um, John if you haven't seen it actually there is one very specific paper which is good which is um, John Schwabish who has a book and a whole thing about responsible data viz has this paper that Catherine and I read as he was uh, finishing it. But it has a lot of another, like a lot of these sort of small things like color palettes, titles, sort of framing of data acquisition, things like this. All if, but anyway, but that actually has a lot more sort of little things like that, that I actually think are quite meaningful, especially if you just make it a practice. Like that's just how you design is that, that stuff always goes in. Um, but I do have one final question because I know there's some attendees that have no data background at all. What advice would you give them to be able to move forward with some of the principles in the book? I mean, I think like everyone starts somewhere and most people, including myself, like or have fewer data skills than they think they do. <laughs> so I would not let that be a, I mean, I, I, I mean, that's sort of one way to look at it. But the other thing that I'll say is that so much good work can happen at the local level in terms of facilitating, in terms of making connections between the data people and the knowledge, the knowledge people, the other kinds of knowledge people. You know, I have students, I teach, I like, I have this weird joint appointment where I teach half of my classes are like technical methods classes, but the others are to uh, humanities students. And so I have them do a lot of data collection at the local level, like about issues on their campus, about sort of collating uh, you know, just tabulating data in Excel spreadsheets or what have you. And that can lead to really informative, you know, really informative stuff, especially if you already have knowledge of a particular issue. I mean, in a way, I feel like the level of your technical ability matters so much less than your deep and detailed and enduring knowledge of a particular issue or uh, circumstance that you're trying to intervene into. You know, that said, oh, wait, I, have a, I do have a really good intro to data skills that I feel like this group would appreciate. It's called the Data Sitters Club. 
and it uses the babysitters club to teach a lot of sort of basic, mostly text because that's what I do, but some other, okay, you need to be a little quiet. Okay. And so anyone can follow along with this. It's super fun. And if you're my age, you'll get a kick out of the references. I want to thank you, Lauren, for your time. We really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. To stay up to date on Data Feminism Network events, check out our website at www.datafeminismnetwork.org. If you're a fan of the show, follow us on Instagram at Data Feminism Network and on Twitter at Data Fem Network. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, where we post event updates and share job opportunities related to data equity and inclusion. Be sure to tune in to next week's episode on the importance and power of data-driven feminist movements with Amanda Austin from Equal Measures 2030.